Well, we still have a few people tricking, trickling in, uh, but as we've got people kindly watching online and, uh, and uh, an exciting rest of the program to continue, we want to make sure that we keep on time as best as possible. Uh, I'm delighted to welcome you all to the second panel. This panel focusing on, on geoeconomic issues. I've got a close friend out in, in, in Western Australia who loves to tease me about our, our, pred, our predilection to use you know, the term geo, geostrategic and you know, geoeconomic and, and to uh, uh, attach it to anything and, and that uh, ilk. But this is a wonderful opportunity for, for us to build on the conversation that we just had on trade and kind of look at it in the broader area of geoeconomic competition, geoeconomic contestation. And I've long believed that uh, when we're having a public discourse about economic relationships with China, so much of that public discourse is full of red herrings, right? People who throw up the notion of decoupling and that's impossible so they can't have the conversation. And so when we talk about the seas, you know, competition and contestation, obviously whether you're Australia or the United States, neither of us are, are countries that are known to shy away from either competition or contestation. However, there are other seas, whether it is coercion, uh, co-optation or co-opting or, or corruption that become you know, fundamentally a challenge to the rules-based order that we've been discussing for much of this day and that are much more worthy of our conversation. And so I think when you have a more specific conversation, uh, and we're not talking just about competition, but these specific areas of coercion, I think it'll be a much more educated uh, discussion. Uh, again, the Perth US Asia Center was delighted to contribute several chapters uh, to, this, to this volume, uh, including those that focus really on this area of economic uh, competition, particularly the areas of economic coercion. Uh, we've got a wonderful panel uh, to help us kind of think through the issues that we're going to be discussing today. Uh, we're going to go in the order, not just as written in the program, but as I'll announce. First, we're going to be hearing from Dr. Jeffrey Wilson, who serves as research director at the Perth US Asia Center. Most of you will know Jeff. Uh, he was here in Canberra just last week launching his report, Adapting Australia to an Era of Geoeconomic Competition, and has written extensively on these issues. He contributed the chapter in this volume specifically on combating economic coercion. After we hear from Jeff, we're going to be hearing from our, our newest colleague at the Perth US Asia Center, our Canberra-based senior policy fellow, Haley Channer. Haley comes to us after a time in the foreign minister's office and five years at the Department of Defense. Uh, and she's contributed a chapter on the US, Japan, Australia trilateral coordination mechanism on infrastructure in the region. I would note that I think at 1.30 this morning, Haley had the chance to pitch that idea directly to the new US Indo-Pacific czar, Kurt Campbell. And so she might be a little bit tired, but she's had a chance. Just say for this audience, she practiced her pitch on Kurt Campbell. So you're, you're just a step above that. that works out. Uh, then after Haley, we're going to hear from, from, from Catherine Manstead. Catherine is a senior advi uh, advisor for public policy at the National Security Council. Again, we thank Catherine. She was kind enough to host us at the, at the NSC last month for the launch of Jeff's Just Report. She'll bring in some of the cyber issues uh, that, that underpin the same basic sector. And then you will note in the middle, middle of the stage here, we, we, we've saved the crown this beautiful plush you know, uh, chair for our virtual panel member. And that is someone who needs no introduction to this audience, uh, Jim Caruso. Jim is the managing director for the Bauer Group Asia based in Singapore, but you will all know here in Canberra from his long role as acting ambassador at the US Embassy during a, a remarkable period of change and challenge here in Australia. 
Jim has many friends here, uh, and we're delighted to have you join us virtually, Jim. So enjoy the comfort of the comfy chair. We'll have you back clean up and, and look at issues related to supply chains uh, and, and other issues that you championed during your tenure. And then following your tenure here, your time as ambassador at the Indo-Pacific Command as well. So we're delighted to have a wonderful panel. Jeff, I'm going to turn it over to you to kick it off, and then we'll move in turn. Excellent. Uh, thanks, Gordon. And uh, thanks to this really esteemed audience for coming out and speaking with us today. Um, Geoeconomic competition has really become a fact of life in the early 21st century. And as international rivalries amongst major powers have re-emerged, economic policies have become a core element in the toolkit of contemporary statecraft. Trade warfare, investment races, and cyber war have all become commonplace. Um, but one of the critical drivers behind the rise of geoeconomic competition is China's use of trade sanctions as a means of economic coercion. Um, the tactic was first adopted in 2010 um, when rare earth exports to Japan were suspended for two months during a territorial dispute in the East China Sea. Um, but since that time, another seven countries, Norway, the Philippines, Mongolia, Taiwan, Korea, Canada, and most recently Australia, have been on the receiving end of Chinese trade coercion. Um, notably, this tactic is only applied to small and medium countries, most of which are US allies, who lack the size and scale to be able to retaliate in a trade war manner that a large economy, as such as the US, could. Um, importantly, this trade coercion serves two purposes, domestic pressure and international deterrence. Against the target, it works by inflicting costs on domestic businesses in the hope that they'll pressure their governments to change foreign policy positions with respect to China. And to third parties in the region, it functions as a warning to deter criticism of Chinese foreign policy in the future. Now, last year, as we all know here, Australia became the eighth country um, to join this pattern. Um, in May, massive, and I should stress legally spurious, anti-dumping duties were applied to Australian barley pricing approximately a billion dollars of exports out to the Chinese market. Um, more trade bans followed in the coming weeks and months, and by November last year, China had imposed some kind of trade sanctional barrier on 13 Australian exports. Um, those affected industries had exported 52 billion Australian dollars to China in 2019, making this a fairly serious economic blow coming atop the dislocations of COVID. Um, however, the Australian government stands out globally for its defiance. The Australian government has refused to offer any diplomatic mea culpa, um, and in December referred the Chinese tariffs on barley to the WTO's dispute settlement mechanism. Um, the Australian WTO case on barley will prove a landmark test of the ability to use trade sanctions for coercion, in the same way that the famous rare earths WTO case that was led by the US, Japan and EU did a decade ago. Um, importantly, it also multilateralizes the issue, allowing Australia to pool resources with like-minded countries and thus providing far greater prospects of a timely victory. And we'd argue that it's essential for Australia, the US and like-minded partners to coordinate their responses to trade coercion. This is a genuinely global and not only Australian problem. China has done this before and will surely do it again unless a collective response is mounted. Um, and medium-sized countries like Australia un are unlikely to succeed in a trade war against a behemoth without support. Um, some practical steps we could immediately implement would include US and Australian coordination on the WTO barley dispute, 
where USTR assistance would greatly augment Australia's litigation capabilities. Um, bilateral discussions to restore function to the WTO dispute settlement mechanism, whose appellate body is presently in court due to US appointment vetoes. Um, and exploring options for developing collective defence mechanisms, particularly a mini-lateral instrument that could enable a faster response than the comparatively slow WTO process, um, akin to what some people are calling a trade version of the NATO Article 5. Um, now, these steps alone won't solve the trade coercion problem, but they are an act of the practical first step that Australia and the US can start now to begin coordination. And of course, trade's only one of the elements of the geoeconomic challenge we presently face. Um, and my fellow panellists are going to talk about infrastructure, cybersecurity, and supply chains now. Thanks. Fantastic. Hayley, infrastructure. Thank you, Gordon. So um, my subject is on infrastructure, and um, originally I didn't think it was a very interesting topic. I thought infrastructure sounds pretty boring. But actually, the more I dug, the more I realised infrastructure is actually a critical strategic battleground in the Indo-Pacific, and Australia and the United States are completely at the heart of it. So my chapter in the publication looks at um, China's Belt and Road Initiative um, being funded to the tune of one trillion US dollars and spanning all the way from Europe to the Pacific. And it looks at the alternative infrastructure financing available to countries in the region presented by Australia, the United States and Japan. Now, these three countries have put together what they call the Trilateral Infrastructure Partnership. And without the private sector, there is no way the TIP, the TIP, is going to be able to compete with China's Belt and Road Initiative. So I sought to look at why that is and how the TIP can actually succeed. And the key point is that we need the private sector involved, but the private sector is not really interested in getting on board. The Trilateral Infrastructure Partnership, after uh, two years since it's been in existence, has only one project. It's a $20 million undersea fibre optic cable from Palau that was mentioned earlier this morning. Now, if we're going to have any meaningful impact in the region, we really need to convince the private sector from all three of our countries that it's really in their best interests to come on board and start to fund some of these incredible initiatives because the country or countries that start to build the Indo-Pacific's underpinning infrastructure are going to have massive influence for generations, for the period that that infrastructure is in place. Uh, so I went and talked to a number of businesses and I asked them, you know, why aren't you taking up opportunities that are present, present through the Trilateral Infrastructure Initiative or its accompanying Blue Dot Network certification scheme? And some of the responses I got were very telling. I mean, first of all, businesses in Australia, the US and Japan, uh, they have other options to invest in. For example, they can invest in infrastructure in developed countries for much lower risk. Um, they also had a problem of not having a project pipeline where they could just go and pick and choose what kind of um, infrastructure that they would like to do. But also something that I continued to hear over and over was that there is no matchmaking between government and the private sector. On the one hand, you have um, government is wanting to partner with business and is expecting businesses to come and knock on government's door and say, we would really like to take some of those loans, please. Um, and business is thinking the way business does, which is that if you have a proposal from me, come and pitch it to me directly. Um, and government is not used to doing that. So my report goes into a couple of recommendations for how this can be addressed. 
I have four recommendations, but I'll just um, give you two, and the rest can be a bit of a teaser. Um, the first one is for a trilateral infrastructure hub. Now, um, before my colleague Jeff tells me that the region doesn't need any more hubs, um, what we could do is use existing DFC, that's a Development Finance Corporation funding, um, existing JBIC funding and DFAT funding that we have for the trilateral infrastructure partnership, put that towards establishing a central hub that acts as a front door, one-stop shop for industry looking to engage with business in the region. We could put this hub somewhere in Southeast Asia, perhaps Singapore, um, and when I pitched this to um, senior government officials this morning, they really loved the idea, but they said they prefer if it was a quad. So um, it'd be interesting to see uh, four countries do an infrastructure hub in the region. And the second uh, recommendation I make is to provide this matchmaking for industry. So you could have um, an annual symposium that was hosted in the region. Um, there has already been one of these. It was hosted by the US, India and Japan. And uh, that happened, it brought together lots of different people from industry to talk in a more candid way about what's stopping them from coming through the door. And I think uh, Australia could really make a, a big contribution in this area through doing that. So I'll leave it there and look forward very much to um, your thoughts on those suggestions. Well, thank you. I, I would note that for the better part of the four years of the previous administration in Washington, D.C., there was a running joke that every week was infrastructure week because the intent was at that time they were going to work on that bill and it never got through. Uh, Simon, in his remarks today, highlighted you know, a level of bipartisan consensus on that issue. And so here's our hope that, that eventually Washington has its own domestic infrastructure week. But what Haley's calling for, obviously, is much more than a week and much broader in scope in this region in terms of where we can work together with allies. So thank you, Haley. Catherine, over to you. Thanks, Gordon. Um, I have no chapter in this esteemed um, publication, but what I do have is um, the National Security College, which is my home institution, has a big body of work on critical technologies and cyber, particularly through a quad lens um, through a vehicle called the Quad Tech Network. And so it's in that kind of context that I'm offering some thoughts on the cyber and critical technologies aspects of some of the challenges that my colleagues have surfaced. And I suppose I want to start out with the notion of cyber coercion. This is a panel on, on coercion. And start off at the, the, the leap point that we're talking about coercion as being a resurgent tool of geopolitics in the Indo-Pacific. And what we've seen to date with cyber attacks, with cyber security, is that the focus uh, on adversarial actions has often been in that traditional area of espionage and confidentiality attacks. But there seems to be perhaps uh, a shift in the winds. So we saw towards the end of last year, um, several months after intensified border skirmishes between India and China, um, a potential act of cyber coercion against Mumbai um, in India. So the New York Times reported that the electricity grid in Mumbai shut down, trains stopped, the stock market halted, and a city of 20 million people were uh, without lights. Whether or not uh, that was an act uh, of cyber aggression, it gives you a flavour of what could happen um, should coercion that is very much intensifying in the trade and economic space start spilling over um, through to cyber-enabled means. So what can Australia and the US do? We're already doing a lot, and I think there's, there's scope to intensify the range of actions. 
Firstly, in Australia, a big focus this year is on critical infrastructure reforms. There is a key opportunity to make sure that the definitions and the best practices that we have for identify and identifying and protecting critical infrastructure are shared ones, uh, bilaterally and regionally. And in particular, to ensure that the focus is not just on hard infrastructure, the kind of poles and wires and electricity grid type of infrastructure, but also on that soft infrastructure personal data, uh, the critical systems that protect human dignity, like hospitals and services, and of course, on our democratic infrastructure. Getting those lists and definitions right is an important first place. But then the next line of effort is, of course, figuring out what collective action, deterrence and defence looks like in this place, uh, in this space, rather. And as Jeff pointed out, Often it is the small and middle players who bear the brunt of coercion because unilaterally we can't respond. That means collective action is important. It also means that Australia needs to be careful not to be the victim of poor cyber strategy. Because if we get things wrong in terms of norms, in terms of escalation, in terms of our pro approach to deterrence, uh, that is something that like-minded countries together can get wrong. And it might be Australia that bears the consequences uh, of strategic failure. On that, I think there's also great scope to look at how we amp up our approach to collective and joint attribution. Attribution's a bit of a pesky topic in Canberra at the moment. Um, we, we have mixed views among Canberra's um, security leaders about whether or not it is appropriate to call out bad action. And what I would say to that debate is this, that we have seen in the last year, and it's something we'll talk about more on this panel, I'm sure, that the increased tempo and um, the, uh, the increased, I guess, uh, uh, aggressiveness of Chinese trade coercion has pointed up to people the need to take action and really spurred a sense of collective impetus on taking action. Cyber at this point remains a little less seen. Some of the consequences of cyber are also something that will happen more longer term. The consequences are yet to come home to roost and that's something we see, for instance, in debates on 5G. So how do we make the consequences and the subterranean covert actions a little bit more seen? How do we spur that collective action? I think being able to come out and having shared principles and standards for attribution might be uh, one way to move the needle forward. Thank you, fantastic. All right, over to Singapore with uh, Ambassador Caruso kindly joining us since 4.30 this morning, this time there. Uh, uh, we'll turn the time over to you to kind of wrap it up with some of your own comments and observations. Thanks, Gordon. Good morning from Singapore. If you're a Biden administration official, you probably uh, worked in the Obama administration as well. And if you're thinking about trade, you're thinking about your experiences with TPP and the fact that Hillary Clinton, who was a big proponent of TPP, turned violently against it and agreed with Donald Trump it, wasn't, it shouldn't be pursued. Trade and uh, free trade in the United States has become increasingly fraught with very little domestic support. So what is President Biden and his team doing now? They've announced a 100-day review of supply chains. Uh, and it's supposed to be about critical tech and, and uh, making sure our supply chains are resilient. Uh, but it's probably going to look at the whole, the whole notion. Um, and the philosophy behind this, as they keep saying, is trade is for the middle class. Trade is for the worker. And individuals are no longer going to be seen as consumers looking for a cheaper t-shirt or cheaper laptop, but 
a wage earner, and that's going to take precedence. So what does this mean for uh, countries in the region and for our clients, which are major multinationals, looking at their supply chains? Well, first of all, um, from a national security aspect, uh, we've already seen a bifurcation of supply chain for things like critical minerals, which Australia is now part of the U.S. supply chain. Um, this was fomented by, a few years ago, China briefly cutting off supplies and critical minerals to Japan. And these are vital for tech and defense industry purposes. So suddenly, uh, as we realize that we are in increasing geostrategic competition with China, as President Biden has announced, we need to be more resilient in assuring our supplies of everything from personal protective equipment and uh, pharmaceutical precursors to the inputs for our tech and defense industries. So if you're in uh, a tech sector, which for years has had a complex and quite efficient supply chain based around Shenzhen, uh, what are you going to do? They've been looking very closely first for uh, years at China plus one for a more resilient supply chain, but now it's becoming more in terms of we need to think about producing in China for China and elsewhere for the rest of the world and perhaps closer to the U.S. for the U.S. if it becomes even more required to, have to demonstrate resilience uh, of the supply chains uh, to the U.S. market. An additional issue uh, which our clients are facing, which the world is facing is, is this all about resilience or is it also about keeping critical tech out of China? Uh, almost a Cold War scenario whereby we'll have increased need for export control. And we're already seeing this with 5G. President Biden has not changed the restrictions on US supplies of chips to Huawei and other Chinese companies. And the question is going to be, what goods are going to be on this list of uh, prohibited exports to China? And will this be extended to uh, factories of companies not located in the US? And I've already talked to, about this to some Singapore officials who said, look, if it's all about resilience and guaranteeing supply to the US, we're, we're right with you. But if it's about somehow isolating China, then we have a real problem. Uh, because of course, Southeast Asia has no interest in getting in the middle of US-China competition that way. So this is gonna be an extremely complex question that's gonna to have to be answered by the Biden administration. I expect they'll be discussing this with allies such as Australia. Uh, will we look at things like a trusted partner supply chain for critical goods, um, whereby certain countries are part of the US base of critical uh, goods? Don't know, but I encourage the Australian government to think about how to engage the government on this and how to engage partner countries in the region uh, to avoid creating uh, unnecessary wedges in policy and approaches. Um, we are working very closely with our clients in this area, but the problem is it's all still so opaque and uncertain uh, that they're sort of searching around for ways to go forward. And uh, I think conferences like this are a great opportunity to think through some of these things. And with that, I'll pass it back on to you, Gordon. Well, thank you so much, Jim. Um, uh, we've got about 20 minutes, and I want to open it up for questions because we've covered a lot of ground. But I do want to pick up on one thing that Ambassador Caruso said and get your feedback on it, Jeff, if I might. Uh, the ambassador mentioned the 100-day the, the review of supply chains that has been announced by the, the Biden administration. 
you've done a lot of work on, on critical materials in particular. Um, uh, together with the United States Studies Center as part of our Good Day USA initiative last year, we worked with the American Australian Association to do a roundtable on critical materials. Uh, and yet, over the course of the last two or three years, despite the, you know, the Trump uh, uh, Turnbull meeting and a lot of talk on there, so far, most of what's come out of that is, a, is an agreement to study the issue more. There had been an, some anticipation that the executive order that came out a, co a couple of weeks ago would have a little bit more specificity on critical materials. Instead, it was broad, it was supply chain. Could you give us a state of play of US-Australia cooperation on critical materials in particular, given what Jim briefed us on? No worries, thanks, Gordon. Um, this has been a long running issue and it's, it's not in fact the first or even the second executive order that's come on, on this out of the US. Trump paid a large number of them in 2017. Um, but one of the big challenges with the critical minerals problem, and this is a number of products and things we'd all know, rare earths, I'm sure no one hasn't heard of them before, lithium, a whole heap of uh, very bespoke minerals that are essential to the 21st century technology ecosystem like cobalt or graphite, um, is it's for a long time been an admired problem. Um, the supply chains are insecure, they're often subject to monopoly supply in their countries of origin, and there's also a lot of intermediate production steps, so not just mining these things, but turning them into usable products that can go into a smartphone or an electric vehicle or an F-16. Um, what's significant about the supply chain announcement that we've seen out of the Biden administration in the 26th of February was that this is really saying, okay, everybody's understood this problem for 10 years, but we need to do something now. Um, it singles out four industries that are going to be subject to a 100-day expedited review, which if anyone's familiar with the mechanisms of government, either in Australia or DC, knows 100 days is practically, it was due yesterday. Um, these are semiconductors, fairly obviously. Um, the inputs that go into pharmaceutical drugs called APIs are pretty obvious in the corona era as well and two critical mineral products, critical minerals such as rare earths, and also lithium for batteries, which is going to be significant for electrification going to electric vehicles. Um, what this is going to mean is that while we'll be looking across the supply chain as a whole, as uh, um, we've been talking about, those four products are going to see action really quick. In 100 days' time, there's going to be a list of these are things that we can do about this now. Um, to not labour the point too far, Australia is the US's fast and most reliable um, way to solve this problem. Um, there are many countries around that have reserves of critical minerals in the ground, but there is really only one country that has existing projects um, and the technical and mining capacity to stand them up on short order at reasonable cost in a secure way, and that's Australia. Um, so when those reviews come out, I'm going to be exceptionally likely that this is going to look towards building on the industrial base we have in Australia around Linus, the only non-Chinese rare earth supplier in the world, and saying, can we do that a second and a third and a fifth time? Can we do it in cobalt? Can we do it in graphite? Can we do it in lithium hydroxide? And one final observation I would add to that, and this ties together the, the opening keynote from the Ambassador Atul Keshap and something that, that Haley mentioned, uh, and that is, for the bulk of its history, the, the Quad was focused almost entirely on security issues. Started in 2004 on, on the, the back of, of the, the horrific Boxing Day tsunami, uh, and was start-stop for a long period of time. But even up until last year, it was almost entirely at the working level in the security realm. 
The foreign minister's meeting last October was a remarkable step, but one of the things I think is worth noting from what we heard this morning is the agenda for the Quad has expanded dramatically and their willingness to address coordination uh, on, on vaccines and, and vaccine production and distribution and then together working in Southeast Asia is remarkable. And the comment that Haley just reported, the notion that, all right, we've had this longstanding blue dot network, Australia, Japan, uh, US coordination on infrastructure. If the, if the response that Haley got this morning coming out of Washington was, well, we'd prefer it to be four, why not <laughs> India? And my guess is in a lot of the conversations we're gonna be having over the weeks to come, that question is gonna come up over and over again out of Japan and out of Washington, why not India? Uh, so interesting framing for the conversation. We've now got just about a uh, little under 20 minutes for, for questions and answers. Uh, we've got a couple of roving mics. If you just raise your hand, we'll start back there in the corner there, please. And just briefly identify yourself before you ask questions, if you would please. Well, thank you. And thank, thanks, panel, for a great uh, uh, presentation. I'm Robert McKinnon from uh, Foreign Affairs and Trade, and also want to shout out to uh, Jim Caruso. Great to, uh, to hear you again. Uh, uh, hearing Caruso sing is always a great, uh, great pleasure. Um, uh, Question goes to uh, uh, infrastructure um, uh, investment competition, however you might I'd like to phrase it. Uh, and it, uh, really an issue of, um, I think, carbs versus protein. Um, so uh, the Asian, Asian Development Bank uh, estimates that to, to maintain robust growth in Asia, uh, Asia will need over $20 trillion worth of investment uh, uh, in infrastructure over, over this decade. Um, now, uh, BRI at one trillion is a large number, but clearly that's uh, you know not uh, uh, not the whole story. Um, but I think we often focus a little too strongly on the flows and not on the stock, and particularly in, in the context of the stock, what does the stock uh, actually mean in terms of the nature of economic relationships between? Uh, various parties concerned. So I'm interested in your thoughts on how you see that 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 developing. Is BRI, uh, a, from your perspectives, developing more as a as a sugar hit, or is it something that where you're actually starting to see the sort of the the, the protein of deep deep relationships develop on, on the back of it? And a, a related issue is around uh, application of standards, because I think one one key element to this is. Uh, uh, is who will set the stand? Who is setting the standards? Who uh, for uh, for a whole range of, uh, uh, of, of in the sense that the, the the technique and technology of, of how infrastructure works, uh, uh, what systems apply in the region, and how how do you see the trends and, uh, and and patterns developing there? Thank you. Thank you. Well, look, one of our challenges as think tanks, USSC and the USA Center, is to make policy issues relatable to the broader public. And I can't think of a better way to, to translate the discussion of infrastructure to, to relate it to the South Beach diet or the no-carb diet. So carb versus sugar head infrastructure. Uh, Haley, over to you. Well, thank you. Um, geez, that was a massive question. So much to unpack there. So thank you very much for that. Um, I think that China is almost seeing the Belt and Road Initiative becoming more like um, a belt around its own neck. Uh, it has really committed a lot of money and it's not quite certain whether or not all those funds will go to the region. And I think uh, countries in the region might see um, the example of Sri Lanka, which is often um, you know, shown as the case of debt trap diplomacy. So countries are becoming wiser to the risks. And you know, a couple of points you picked up on in your question was that, and what makes infrastructure so interesting <laughs> is that 
It is all about um, showing leadership in the region. It's about influencing countries positively. And it's about the rules-based order. And what kind of order do we really want? Because if that infrastructure is provided in a way that's unfair, not transparent, potentially corrupt, has a dual-use purpose, so it has both um, commercial and military applications, there are huge concerns there about what that could mean for the region. I read a report recently about how um, China is really specifically targeting strategic assets that potentially, um, if the PLA is able to seize Chinese state-owned assets, that it might be able to extend that to assets overseas. So I think indeed countries are becoming wiser to the risks and they are desperately seeking an alternative, which at the moment the US, Australia and Japan are struggling to provide. Um, the US and Japan independently can do that on their own. They have been doing that. Japan has been present in the region for decades. Um, but it's really a matter of, um, I would think this is, would be an easy sell for the Australian government, job creation. Um, it's all about using the funds that are available, but actually getting the private sector interested. Um, so I'm not sure if that answered your full question. I'd love to chat to you afterwards, and I want to give my uh, other panel members an opportunity yeah. to respond. Um, Jim, I'd like to bring you back into this conversation. Sitting as you are in, in Singapore, many of these issues around the infrastructure products, projects and the Partnership for Quality Infrastructure from Japan, TIPS that, that, that Haley has mentioned, BRI, are, are obviously a focus of, of not only the region, but your work. Can you give us your, your kind of response to the question? Sure, thanks. Um, look, I've worked on this question for a long time, and the problem is our democracies are really, really unwieldy when it comes to financing these sorts of projects. We have all sorts of environmental re reviews. We don't coordinate well with the private sector. We don't coordinate well with each other. Whereas China comes in and says, here's the money, here's the team that's going to build it, we're done. Um, I would suggest rather than forming a hub, we do two things. One, ASEAN has a list of 20 priority infrastructure projects that have already been vetted by the ADB. Let's choose one and demonstrate what we can do, how we can work together. Two, the US has a program where we put together teams to vet contracts that are signed by countries with China. So they can say, okay, this contract would uh, use th this much domestic labor and input. Uh, it would commit you to give up your sovereignty or not. Just make sure it meets the requirements of a country and it's fully transparent. That's relatively cheap. It actually uh, would result in infrastructure, which presumably would lessen China's influence while still resulting in infrastructure. Because, hey, if China wants to build something useful, I'm all for it. Fantastic. Uh, before I go back to Jeff to wrap up, there's anything you want to add on this, Catherine? Yeah, I just might quickly add, I mean, we're talking about standards, which is a bit of a trigger word for those involved in critical tech conversations, right? So we can talk about standards in terms of what are the standards of financing and, and um, funding for infrastructure, but we can also talk about standards as something that are baked into the very core of tech-enabled systems. And to your point, Rob, about who creates standards, well, standards aren't just something that we devise and put on a piece of paper. They are intimately connected in the design and build of tech and infrastructure systems. And so if we don't um, proactively get on top of that, um, there's no amount of words and rhetoric and sitting around a table negotiating standards that can potentially walk us back or take us to a point of standards that we think are acceptable once they're already de facto in a system. 
Um, and I think just to your point as well, Gordon, about the way in which the Quad is approaching this, I thought it was remarkable that the Quad leaders communicate, the first time the leaders of Quad countries have actually got together, um, of a five-paragraph communique, um, the word technology appeared five times. Mm. Right? This for a partnership that was originally devoted towards the hard edge of security, maritime security and economics. Technology is now the focus. There will be a critical technology working group that falls out of the meeting that was had at the quad level last week, and the five or so points that that working group will be covering is also remarkable. A huge focus on standards, um, shared principles between the four countries, and we can have another conversation about the extent to which shared principles are actually kind of possible or feasible, um, even among like-minded, um, but also the notion of co-development of infrastructure, particularly in the telecommunications space. And that tells us something about the importance of getting ahead of the curve, baking standards in of design, use and development of tech right at the beginning, because there is an understanding that if quad countries don't do this now, if like-minded liberal democracies don't do this now together, um, we will miss um, that incredibly influential um, opportunity to shape what our system looks like for decades, if not centuries, to come. Jeff? Thanks, Gordon. And look, Gordon, if we were to start from your premise at this, which is a lot of the things that have been done bilaterally or trilaterally might now need to be quadded <laughs> in coming weeks and months. Um, I, this is, I think infrastructure is a really good story for the quadding agenda because if you look at the four countries, the infrastructure relationship that is most strong amongst those four is uh, Japan and India. Um, this one goes back a really long way. I won't tell you the full history because if you'd like to read it, read Rory Metcalf, the head of the National Security College's um, Contest for the Indo-Pacific book, which actually starts with a Japan infrastructure, a Japan-India infrastructure partnership. Um, that's been driven, up a, a significant part of that bilateral relationship has been built around that. Um, and it's interesting in the quad format, when we're here at an Australia-US dialogue, Australia and US are the laggards on the quad when it comes to doing that stuff. Japan and India are already doing it. So if that's something we want to quad, it's, more, it's less about dragging India in and shoving ourselves into something that Japan and India are already well onto. Well, thank you. Magnificent panel. And, and if, if meaningful infrastructure initiatives are proteins, uh, this is, there's the beef for you in terms of that process. <laughs> Good, appreciate that. All right, we've got time for a couple more questions. I thought I saw one right up here in the, in the front here. Craig, if we could, please. Oh, no, it's coming right up to you. Sorry about that. We've got people online too, so we need to use the mic. Yeah, thanks. Gotcha. Hi. Yeah, uh, Craig Chapman. I'm chairman of the American Australian Association. Um, so it seems to me that whether it's critical minerals, whether it's infrastructure, whether it's Belt and Road, a, a key aspect for when you're, particularly when you're, when China's on the other side, is you've got a state enterprise, as Jim mentioned earlier, uh, and they can do things like this. Um, they don't have to involve their private sector, or if they do, they just subsidize it. So the biggest challenge we face as capitalist democracies um, is involving the private sector, which, you know, Haley, you mentioned before, is kind of a, a, a critical issue. And I think we in the United States work with the private sector in different contexts. We have lobbyists and who, who lobby Congress for subsidies and this and that. But when you're talking about critical minerals, for example, there's that, that creates one set of issues. You know, anytime you start ramping up production, China reduces prices and keeps everybody out of the market. So how do you address that? With the Belt and Road, how do you get deep in and some of the, you know, the US um, 
OPIC successor involved in the financing? How do you get private sector to interact with them? That's been a big challenge. And I know, Jim, you, you dealt with that when you were in the seat down here. So isn't that a big issue for across, across the landscape of what you're talking about on this panel is involving the private sector? And how do you do that? So let me start with Jeff, because if I can regurgitate it correctly, one of the core conclusions of his adapting Australia for an era of geoeconomic competition was precisely that our old strategies might need some change. And so I'll let you kind of jump no, into that. Thanks, uh, Craig. Um, just a month ago, the Perth US Asia Centre issued this report, which is looking at those exact questions you're asking from a specifically Australian point of view in this uh, report. But one of the arguments we make here is in in an era of economic opening and cooperation, the kinds of things we've lived through for most of this room's professional lives, 80s, 90s, early 2000s, economic liberalism and the kind of ways that we run our economies was the adaptive way to do it. Um, the challenge is you moving into an era of geoeconomic conflict where it's a trade war, an infrastructure race, or cyber hacking disguised as something else, often done by a state-backed actor, um, is that in that context, the kind of economic liberalism of free trade, an arm's length relationship between government and business, the things that make our system works, is the equivalent of unilateral disarmament on, in geoeconomic terms. We have said we're going to reduce our stockpile of weaponry at a time when others, including but not limited to China by any, any means, this is not purely a China story, are arming. Um, so I think what you get to the nub of here is a real question is, if we just look at our domestic economic interests, the system we've got is the one we want. But if you look at the international competition, there's a degree to which you have to move into that direction. And I, I think realistically, and this is, is not someone, this is someone who spent most of his life as a trade policy specialist arguing against protectionism, but there is going to need to be a trade-off between the ideal and the reality of what we need in the policy toolkit. Um, just using critical minerals, I'm sure these guys can give some examples as well. The reality is there will be no non-Chinese supplies of rare earth minerals unless they receive some kind of government support. So, so do we, we have to, if we want it, we have to pay the price. And, but let me bring Jim back in on this, as well as, as Haley and Catherine, if you want to chime in on it. It seems to me, though, that when we have that conversation, we have to be a little bit more specific. Because when you say infrastructure, most people are going to think about roads and bridges and dams. Uh, but if you're a little bit more specific and you talk about critical infrastructure, however poorly defined, then you get into the realm, whether it's rare earth, whether it's cyber, whether it's communications technology, that begin to have national security, economic security kind of implications, that you, you, you do have to have a much more, at least anticipated, proactive role of government. So Jim, any comments you might have on that? And then we'll go back to, to Haley and Catherine as well. Uh, well, first, greeting to, greetings to Patrick from the embassy who's been following this minerals issue for a long time, so I'm not gonna argue with him. Uh, but look, Jeff is right. We are, as countries that believe in separation between business and government, not very good at saying, okay, this company X is going to be providing 5G for us, right? Uh, so we has, have as a result, no 5G supplier in the United States as a single source. Um, going forward, do we need to find a way to change that? Do we need a, maybe a, a bidding process to uh, have government support a supplier. But it means the government has to look forward and say what's going to be needed, what's critical. Is it, is it quantum computing? Is it machine learning? Is it artificial intelligence? How do we choose winners? How do we set standards? When China clearly is devoting resources and choosing winners on a global scale. Thanks. Catherine, anything real quick? Then Haley. 
Um, just very quickly, because this is about the US-Australia alliance as well, and thinking about technology, I think Australia has actually been a bit of a leader in saying, hey, we're not just going to leave all this to the private sector anymore. You look at our encryption laws, our news bargaining code, you look at conversations on the Hill this week about um, the PJCIS and extremism in big tech in America. Um, Australia, I think, is trying to push the needle forward here and might need to have some productive conversations with the US about the relationship between tech and um, government. And in that, um, it's not just a China story. This is also about Australia asserting where the bounds of our sovereignty and values sit and how we can influence the US in that conversation as well. Great. Hayley, final word on this? Yeah, I would just say, uh, Craig, you're 100% right. Uh, private sector is key. And if I can just reflect on my five years working at Department of Defence, one thing I saw the Brits do incredibly well and seamlessly, in fact, was sell their military kit to me without me knowing it. <laughs> And um, I wouldn't really think Australians have the same perspective. We're not really naturally inclined to sell ourselves in any way, not like the Americans are, and we're not likely to um, feel seamless in how we move from strategic interests and priorities to we should also cooperate together in this military um, you know, procurement. Um, and because I know this is the end, I just wanted to make one other final re concluding remark, and that is that no matter what the US does um, this year, uh, Kirk Campbell and his team, they should only focus on one to two things because if they spread their energies too widely, it's going to be um, too little too late and they need to make a strong impact in one area. Um, so I'll leave it there. Look, um, there are a lot more questions out there. I have a lot more myself, but we, we can't claim fealty to a rules-based order if we don't keep the rules. Uh, and we've got an excellent security panel coming up after the coffee break. I will end back on my, my, our favorite topic of this panel of carbs versus protein. If you missed a cookie during the last coffee break, I guarantee you there's more carbs out there the next time. So uh, please join me in thanking, again, particularly from Singapore and, and Ambassador Jim Caruso, a wonderful panel, Haley, Catherine, and Jeff. Uh, uh, and we look forward to the next panel. Thank you again. Appreciate it.